read God's word. This is the word of the Lord. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you that you are a God who is with us in times of difficulty, in times of suffering. We know you never leave us or forsake us. And so it's to you we look this morning as we study your word. May we live confidently in your presence. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Two weeks ago, my wife and daughters and I were on a trip. We were in Louisville, Kentucky. And in Louisville, there's the Ohio River that works its way through there. And there was a location, a site we found, a little park that I thought was very interesting. It's near the falls of Ohio, and it's where Lewis and Clark began their expedition. Now, I know you've heard that it began in St. Louis, but for these two men, it began there in Louisville. And there's a letter that was written by Clark, by uh, Lewis to Clark. Meriwether Lewis wrote a letter, and in it he said to Clark, he says, I've been invited to go on this expedition to take us to the end of the country, to the end across this river. And he said, I'm inviting you to come along. And if you would, I'd like you to come along and bring with you many stout men, single men, but men who can handle difficulty, who knows their way through the woods and, and are tough guys, basically, is what he's getting at. And so they began their journey there, and they made their way, as many of you know, across the country. And part of the reason we talk about the great expedition of Lewis and Clark is because it was such a difficult expedition. It was hard, treacherous trails, uh, rivers they crossed. There were no trails. They made their way eventually to the West Coast. We think also of perhaps the first expedition that took a man down the Colorado River. Do you remember who that was? John Wesley Powell, Lake Powell. And so Powell made his way down the Colorado River. And as he wrote after the fact, he said that, as I made my way through the river, I thought that no man has ever seen this river before and none will again for 200 years. Now he thought it was such a treacherous expedition that he wrote about it thinking nobody would ever trek this way ever again. Now do you remember the first person that went down the Mississippi River? Now we don't know that. Because Mississippi is not a difficult river to navigate. It's basically just a nice, easy river that flows downhill. And so making your way down the Mississippi is not such a tremendous feat. But those who live lives of difficulty, and I thought this is a good analogy for what life is for us. Life is difficult. And we begin a journey with excitement, with anticipation, knowing that in the future, hard and troublesome times may come. But we have to know how in our life to overcome these difficult times, how to make our way and survive to the end. And so to do so, we want those along with us who are strong, who are capable, and perhaps those who have spent time in the difficult times of life themselves. And so our life is much like that making our way through difficult times. Now, have you ever seen a movie where somebody's story in this film was a life that began well, got better, until the end when life was just glorious and then they died? 
it doesn't make for a very interesting or exciting film. And so they don't make movies like that. Instead, the great protagonist of any film is one who goes through great difficulties and overcomes trials and difficulties in life. And so the Christian life is going to be much like that. It's one in which we have to know that there is difficulty, trials will come, but there is a way. There is hope of overcoming those trials, reaching the end successfully and gloriously. And that's the promise of the Christian life. There is a way to make it to the end. And many times we struggle in life with difficulties, wondering, is there a way out? Is there a way to make it? The Christian life is knowing that there is. There is hope. And so we want to begin this morning with this idea, knowing that there is a God, there is a hope, a promise that God will take us to the end. There is a way out. But it's different the way, than the way out that many other people view the way out. So, for example, if you ask a typical person who's not a believer, and perhaps even some who say they are but aren't fully up on their theology, what is the hope? Where does it go? You might get a, a lot of different answers. So, on the one hand, uh, if you were to ask a Hindu, for example, and tonight we're going to be talking about Hinduism, uh, did you know that the, um, uh, the CEO of Microsoft is a Hindu? The CEO of Google is a Hindu. It's a very common philosophy out there in a lot of ways, but for the Hindu, the hope is that one day we will escape this life and become nothingness again. You see, so for the Hindu, they're looking for this way out. You know what karma is? If you do bad things, then your next life is going to be worse in the rebirth. And if you do good things, then your next life may be better. And as you live many lives, you work your way out of this cycle called samsara. You work your way out of it to where maybe eventually you reach nirvana. And nirvana for the Hindu is a place of nothingness where you become one with the Brahman, the oneness of the universe, and you basically evaporate and go away. That's the hope of Hinduism, that one day it all ends because you become nothing again. For Buddhism, it's not much different. The Buddha taught four great truths, the noble truths of Buddhism. The first is that, first, there is suffering, suffering in the world. Now, that's obvious. We all agree with that. Secondly, that suffering is caused by our desires. Third, there's a way out of suffering. And then there's the ten paths out of suffering. And the Buddhist hope is that one day we can follow this path and reach again nirvana where we become nothing, where we stop the cycle of rebirth again and dying and again over and over again. So that's the hope, that you become nothing again. But for the believer, the hope is very different. For the believer, the hope is that one day we escape this place of suffering to live gloriously with God forever and eternity. And so that's our eternal hope. Now, on the other hand, there's others who would say that there is no future beyond this, that we live in this naturalistic universe. It's a simple materialist universe, and it's all there is is what we see. There's nothing beyond all of this. And in recent years, we've seen the new atheists who have talked about this, Richard Dawkins, for one, who sees all of this. And in fact, Dawkins was once asked about the troubles of the world, including tsunamis, including the Holocaust, and all of these problems we talk about with evil. And he said, well... I prefer not to call it evil. And the reason he knows he can't do that is because at least he takes the atheist conclusion to its logical end, which is that if there is no moral law giver, there is no good, therefore there can be no evil. And so all we are is simply a bunch of molecules that kind of metabolize with genes that drive us, and eventually those genes die away and we die away, and that's the end of it all. So there's no good and evil in this sort of atheistic worldview. There's simply existence and survival and then death. We go away. And so for Dawkins, there's nothing more than that. Now, I know many atheists, agnostics may say that, 
well, there's uh, something more to it than that. I think it's only because they haven't reached the logical conclusion that Dawkins reached. Now, Albert Camus is a, a philosopher who once said that I came to my atheism, I came to deny God, not based on the arguments or based on science, but based on suffering. So for Camus, he saw suffering as being the real reason to reject God. How can there be a God in this universe who allows suffering also? And this is a problem that the naturalist has, the atheist has. How can we live with suffering? How can there be a God in such a place? Many others have thought the same way. Dostoevsky wrote his uh, book, The Brothers Kamarazov, and in it he said that if there is no God, then all is, all is done. This is the problem that we all face, and we all have to deal with this. So we've talked last week about the problem of evil, generically, in a broad sense, philosophically. We're not going to go over that again, but instead to focus on the last two problems. The first problem, of course, is the argument against God's existence, and we talked last week about that, how there is an answer to say that there is a God. And let me just add a few things to that to kind of remind you of this again. The problem, they say, is this, that the biblical God that we talk about, the God we worship, is a God who we say is omniscient, who's all-knowing, He's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, and he's what we'd call omnibenevolent, he's all-good. So we have an an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God. But if there is a God who's all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, that God would not allow evil to exist. But evil does exist, therefore God does not exist. And that's the argument that they give to us. And we talked last week how we answered that. But let me just add two more thoughts to that. In addition to those three attributes of God, we can add at least two more. One is that God is all-wise, that God is all-wise. Now, there's actually a word for that as well that you might read in old theologies called he's omnisapient. We know homo sapiens are thinking beings. God is omnisapient. He's all-wise. And so as believers, we believe not only in a God who's all-powerful and good and knowledgeable, but who's also wise, and he knows what he's doing. He has a sovereign plan that he's working out. The second attribute to that we might add is that God is eternal. God lives outside of time, and so he's seeing a picture much broader than ours. He's seeing something bigger than what we see. And so we have to understand that biblical God is a God who's there for us and who sees and who knows, but who's also all wise and lives beyond the scope of our world. Now you think of an infant who's going in to get the shots, right? Think of an infant going into the shot. What does the infant know? And I know we've got a number of infants here. Your bulletin talks about a a celebration, I think this next uh, week, where the women get together, their babies, to celebrate this great life that God has given to us. You take the infant in for a shot. The only thing the infant knows is, this mother of mine has been there, nursed me, taken care of me, and now she walks me into this man who then takes a needle and starts jabbing me with it. And the infant's first thought is, why would you do that? not knowing there's something bigger going on here. And that's the way we are in this life. Sometimes we don't understand everything. We can't see everything, but God does. And so we trust in a God who knows that what happens to us is for our better good. There's something more in this life than simply what we know. And so it becomes rather arrogant for us to think that in our own minds, we should know all of the answers to everything. Because sometimes God has answers. God has reasons that we don't know. The great Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga talks about this. Uh, In a number of places, there's what's called the sand flies. And if you know what these are, they're very, very small. And they call them, in certain areas of the country, noceums. 
no seams because you can't see them. You can no see them. You get that? And so they, these are so small that they can come through the webbing, the netting of, of the tent that you have. You don't see them at all, but they begin to, to, to sting you. Now, Plantiga talks about this illustration. If you had a pup tent, a very small tent, and he were to ask, look in the tent and tell me if you see a St. Bernard. You could safely look in the tent and say, I don't see a St. Bernard, therefore I know there is no St. Bernard in this tent. Okay? But can you look in a tent and see whether there are any noceums? Well, you can look in there, but because you can't see them, you can't know that they're not there. And in the same way, you see, Plantiga says, there may be reasons that God has for the pain in our life, for the difficulties we go through. We don't see them all, but it doesn't mean there are not reasons. And so there are reasons that we go through these struggles in life. So we see God in his wisdom, God in his eternal nature can look past all of time and know there are good reasons that we go through these circumstances in life. Now, in the outline you have, there's a few things we're going to talk about, three questions. The three questions are, is God to blame for my suffering? Secondly, why does God allow suffering in my life? And then third, how can I find comfort from God in my grief? These are three questions I think we want to address, at least try and get some grounding in this so we can think about this in a more logical way. Now, evil, of course, is pervasive. Evil is everywhere. And we wonder sometimes why God allows it to happen to us. And I think the first thing we want to remember is that there is a sovereign God who does have a plan in the universe. Again, last week we mentioned that this month is the 100th anniversary of the great influenza of 1918. A hundred years ago, 1918, and Dick Shortly survived this influenza, I think. But this great influenza caught 500 million people worldwide. Now, this virus began to attack, and it's not exactly sure when, but you know historically that there is the World War I that was about that time, and American soldiers being transported around the country. First in Kansas, it appears, it began, and then it was taken by soldiers into Europe. And then passed around there, 500 million caught the flu. Between 75 and maybe 100 million people in those two years died because of it. The life expectancy of a man went from 48 years old to 36 years old those years. And from a woman went down to uh, 42 years old. And so you see that a lot of people died. There was a lot of question, where is God in all of this? How can we survive an evil such as this? These are the things we think about. We know also of the great tsunami of 2004, and then we saw in Indonesia this week again, another tsunami. And I saw a video of of this coming, a man recording this. And I don't know any Indonesian words except one, which is tsunami. And I could hear him speaking a number of words in tsunami, tsunami. He kept saying this over again, tsunami. He knew it was coming. He knew there was something bad coming. What do you do about that? Well, is God to blame for our grief? In Matthew 26, let me just read a few verses for you. We see here that Jesus himself was deeply distressed by his suffering in in Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, verse 38, then Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. We think in our life about the tidal wave of difficulty that comes in our life, the grief, the loneliness, the anger, the suffering, and all of this. All of these circumstances in life can sometimes accumulate in pieces or come in great tidal waves that overwhelm us. And we feel this great difficulty. We feel this great stress. We can think about tragedies in life. 
We think about people who die, and many of them out of their own time. We think about believers who fail. We think about the financial stresses we have where our financial security is threatened because of some economic change in life. Our children rebel. Our parents fail us. All of these circumstances come into our lives and we feel this loneliness, this separation, this suffering that comes along with that. And we wonder, where is God in all of this? And what we see from Scripture is we must never lessen our faith in God in His goodness and His sovereignty. We think about our confidence in God and we have to remember that God is a good God and that God is a sovereign God. Now, some believers want to solve the problem of evil by saying that God is not sovereign. In other words, they say that although God is a great God, he's not sovereign over the universe. In other words, certain things are out of his control. And so God's doing the best he can in battling evil, but these things are out of his control. On the one hand, they may say it's in your control or the devil's control. This is the realm of the devil now in this great cosmic battles going on. The answer is to say that God is too weak to handle evil. And they offer this as a solution, believing that somehow this makes things better. Now think about the idea of losing our confidence in a God who is sovereign, a God who does not have control over the universe. And what we see in Scripture is a God who's happy to stay on the hook. He's not trying to find a way off the hook of this difficulty, but it's God instead who shows himself to be sovereign in control, knowing that nothing happens outside of his control. And so as we as believers, although we may not know all of the particular answers, we can still rest assured knowing that there is a God who is in control. Nothing in your life happens outside of the purview, the scope of God's sovereign control. Along with that sovereignty is his goodness. And so we know that God is there for us. And so in life, our suffering is not known to us, but it is known to God. We think also of the comfort we have. God allows suffering, but there is a purpose in it. Now, we've had tragedies happen within our own body in recent months. You think about it, parents who lose a child, and they wonder, where is God in this? As believers, unless you've experienced that, you can't go to a couple like that and say, I know how you feel. You can't do that. Nothing is more hurtful than to act like you can empathize with somebody who's going something that you've never been through. But God can. He lost his son. He sent his son for us. And while I cannot empathize with that particular type of grief, God can. And he's there for us. And we think about like the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, we see all of these promises. I will be with you through the fire. These promises coming to Moses. I'll be with you in the den of lions as it comes to David and his, his compatriots in, the, in the, 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 the fiery furnace and on and on. What do we see as we get to the New Testament? In fact, we see God does go through the fire with us. He leads the way. We need a God who is there with us who's been that way. A few years ago, I uh, did my, uh, my first 14er, hiking a 14er. And it was in kind of like the early spring, March. And at the bottom, when you began toward the bottom, and this was the Grays and Tories Peak. How many of you hiked that one before? A number of you have been. Grays and Tories is a great hike. At the bottom at this time, it was dry. It was summer. It was 
warm, it was comfortable, and it was just fine. And so a lot of people, so we made our way. But I went with somebody who knew what it was like at the top of the 14er that day. And at the top, you found out that it was snow-capped at the top, and so we had to have our gear, the crampons and, and other things, to make our way to the top. You had to have the clothing to survive up there. And so we got up at 4 o'clock in the morning. We hit the mountain by about 6 a.m. and made our way up by 8, 30, 9 o'clock. We're at the top. And what you found was this. The way up initially was comfortable. There's a trail. There's a path. It was not difficult. It was warm. The higher you got, the more difficult it became. Not just in altitude or in, in a, a steepness, but in the temperature, in the wind, and in the snow. And if you weren't prepared for the snow at the top, you would be finished. You couldn't go any higher. But we had the gear, and so we made our way to the top. And at the top of the mountain that day, I remember standing on the top of that mountain, looking over west, clear over Breckenridge and beyond. And what you see up there is beautiful, but the experience there was cold and it was windy. It was a stiff wind, maybe 30, 40 miles an hour. The snow on the top made it, you could feel it on your face. It was hard at the top, and we made our way back down. And as we did, we saw a number of hikers trying to make their way up the snow without the gear. They didn't have somebody who knew the way. They didn't have somebody who had been there before. And a lot of country hikers walking along like this is no big deal, they couldn't get past that first point where the snow began because they were not ready. And we as believers want to be with somebody who's been down a treacherous road like that, who's made it through those difficult times. And that's why we need each other. First, we need each other. Secondly, we need a God who's offered as Christ, who's been that way of suffering before. And so in Christ, we can see the the road that he's trod and the way that he's been and what he's done for us. And so the cross is that great experience. And even in his own dying, when we all face death, we can face it with confident assurance that there's something beyond this life. Uh, We lost Pat a few uh, weeks ago, Pat Labarge, who has been here every Sunday sitting right about there. And every Sunday, I would, I would talk to her and greet her every morning. And a few weeks ago, I again talked with her, not knowing that this would be the last time I would say, good morning, Pat, how are you, and, and, and hear from her. We never know when our last time might be. We never know when God calls us, and that's the end of us. But we can know that whenever that happens, that we'll be ready because of God. Let me read uh, um, from a, a book a professor of mine, James Means, wrote this book when I was in his class years ago uh, at Denver Seminary. He lost his wife. The book is called A Tearful Celebration, Courage in Crisis. And Dr. Means writes this book, and I'm just going to read a paragraph out of it, as he talks about this question of blaming God and the difficulty in life and what it's like. He says, it's very difficult for me to see my life in relation to eternity. I only see the great deep waters of testing as they wash over me. My soul sinks in depression, the sun sets over an angry sea, and a shadow of darkness creeps across my life. At times I think that life is no longer worth living. I plunge into the forbidding desert like Elijah to sob out my complaint to God. Like Job, I ponder the inscrutable ways of God. I shed my tears into a vast reservoir of unutterable sadness. I may blame him. Yet I trust him and believe that he understands my hurt. And what Dr. Means is talking about here in this book is the experience of losing his wife slowly, painfully, knowing that even though he can't explain it, 
and he's a great theologian, a great pastor in town some years ago. He couldn't explain all of the particular reasons, but he knew even still he could trust in a God who knew that there was a way out. There is hope. So let's look at the second question we have. Why does God allow suffering in my life? We again remember that we have a master plan, that God has a master plan of which we are a character, we are a part, we are in his plan, and he's working out it out in our lives. And we know that we don't live inconsistently with God's master plan. In other words, we live in his plan according to his desires. In Matthew chapter 10, in verse 29, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you were of more value than many sparrows. You see, our suffering is never outside of the sovereign plan of God. And when you feel like somehow God is not there, we know that he always is there. The difficulty, the difficulty in, your life, in your life is not because of bad luck. It's not because of unfortunate circumstances. It's all part of what God has for us in our life. And again, a mature believer knows that God is wiser than we are, that we don't have the wisdom that God has, and so we can't always answer these difficult questions that people come to us with, that we have in our own life. But we, knew that, but we do know that God is wise. Now, in Job chapter 2, verse 9, Job, of course, you know the great story of suffering from the Old Testament. In fact, the book of Job, written probably 3,000 years or so ago or more, uh, is one of the first writings in human history that deals specifically with this problem of suffering. And we read these words, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And that's the advice given by a lot of unbelievers. They say, Because of suffering in this life, curse God and die. There is no hope. But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What Job says is that how can we accept God's blessings if we don't also accept the difficult circumstances in life that bring suffering? The song we sang just moments ago, and I can't tell you with its title, but we saw the words there that there's, there's blessings that we worship, that we glory in when good things happen. But even in the darkness, we give praise to God. Even in the darkness times of life, we give praise to God. And so we learn that the cause of our suffering is precisely what God has for us. It's not outside of God's scope. The suffering we have, the difficult times we have, is designed by God for us to make us into what we are. And again, Job 6, For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. We feel this way, but even still we know God is with us. You think of Joseph. When sold by his, by his brothers into, into slavery, he suffered, but he trusted God. We think of David, who spent years in the wilderness running from those who wanted to kill him. He suffered, but he trusted in God. We think of Jeremiah, who suffered and lamented over evil in the world and the difficulties of his life, but even though he suffered, he trusted in God. We think of Paul, although shipwrecked, beaten, chased, and, and scourged, nevertheless, Paul trusted God. And through all of these circumstances, each of these biblical characters remind us over and over again to believe in a God who's there with us in the troubles. 
Even if we can't explain why this particular trouble comes to my life, this particular moment that brings such difficult emotion, we know nevertheless that there is a God who is there with us in it. And so we see that our suffering can be instrumental in our life without being accidental. These things aren't accidental. It's not outside of God's control, but they're instrumental in changing us into what God wants us to be. They give us the character we need, the growth we need. They make us into what God wants us to be. And so in life, we must never be more in love with God's blessing than with his person. A lot of churches, in a sentimental sort of way this morning, are teaching that what God wants for you is to be happy and wealthy and to enjoy all of God's blessings, all of God's joys of life, without also realizing and recognizing that difficult times do come. Those two are a part of God's plan. So what we want more than anything is his person. And again, the greatest joy in life is always going to be not enjoying simply the blessings of God, but the person of God, knowing there's a God who is there for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We go through life not alone, but knowing there's a God with us. And so our third question this morning, how can I find comfort from God in my grief? How can I find comfort from God in my grief? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes, we not, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. We have a hope. And what we have in 1 Peter chapter 1, as you saw in those verses a few weeks ago, is we have what's called a living hope. A living hope in God, a living hope that there's something in life, a hope, a promise that comes to us in Christ that gives us reason to look beyond these worlds, this world and this suffering. There's something more. But what this does is it gives us strength. There's a strength that comes in knowing that there's a hope beyond this. Now, you all remember the, uh, the, the story of the three little pigs, right? The three little pigs. And we have the first pigs. The three little pigs want to go out, so they make their way. And I read this in a doctor's office just a few weeks ago. But uh, they make their way out. And the one little pig, he uh, goes out and he finds something to build a house with, a straw. And he builds a house of straw. The second one goes and finds the sticks. He makes sticks and he builds a house of sticks. The third finds bricks. And of course, the one with straw, the, the uh, wolf comes, blows it down. The sticks, the wolf comes, blows it down. But then the wolf comes against the big that had built a house out of stone, solid, and survives. The Christian life is all about building a house out of stone. It's about giving us security and strength. And so every Bible study you go to is, is like putting another brick. I was going to say a brick in a wall, like Pink Floyd, but another brick in the wall. It's, it's putting another stone in the foundation. Every sermon you hear may not change your life today in a dramatic way, but maybe just incrementally adds one more stone to that foundation that gives you the strength you need to deal with trials when they do come. Your greatest comfort is going to be in the strength that we have in this life because we build a strong Christian life. Now, for those who endure suffering without this foundation, it's hard and difficult to come to a person like that and offer them a lot of theology as an explanation. It's hard at those moments of crises to explain that, well, God is sovereign, God is eternal, God is in control, and on and on. 
without it being, it's not going to be received well. And so for a person suffering particular moments of emotional grief, sometimes all we can do is put our hands around them, our, our hand, hold their hands, our arms around them and say, we're praying for you and we're here for you. But in, if you're not in that circumstance this morning, my great encouragement to you would be to find a time every day, grow significantly in some way every year so that when those times in life do come, you can bear up under them. Great believers find a way of growing spiritual in their life. They find a way of making uh, a strength in their life. So when these times do come, they're not unprepared. And so all of us have this duty to be prepared. Uh, what we can do is, again, lift our eyes up to a God who has provided for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul writes, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What Paul is saying here again is that we are all suffering the wasting away of this body. It decays, it weakens. And as you get older, you know, you reach a point where you're not going to get stronger in life and all the workouts you do are simply maintaining where you're at and all you can do is hope to maintain. But even after that, you begin to degrade. And as we get older, the back hurts more. It doesn't get better. The knees begin to give out. They don't strengthen again. And in the end, we feel this body beginning to decay and waste away. But the inner man can be renewed every day. While the body may waste away, the inner man, the inner spiritual part of who you are, can get stronger every day. And that is what gets us through these times of difficulty in life. Again, there's no solace that comes to a person's heart exactly like that, uh, to, to the person who recognizes the promise that God has made. When you remember the promise that God has made, there's comfort in that. In Psalm 30, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. There are so many promises in the scripture, and we can talk about isolated ones, all of these individual promises, accumulate them. But let me just give you kind of the big overview promise, and that's the promise that in our life, this is not all there is. There is promise of a future restoration to spend eternity with God and Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, that you will be made whole again. There's something more. That's our great promise. And so even through the suffering of this life, the unexplained difficulties we face, we know that there's something more, something beyond this. And so we think about the joy that we want in life. Where can we find joy? A lot of times we think we would be happier if we had money. That would solve a lot of problems. We'd be happier if we had better health. That would, for many of you, solve the one problem you feel most struggling with. All of these things we think. But the joy of the Lord is not going to be in the ease of life. It's not hitting the lottery. The joy of the Lord is not in our health. The joy of the Lord is not in our wealth. The joy of the Lord is what? In our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so the joy of the Lord comes to us in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The strength that we want in life is that strength that comes in knowing that there is a God who's made promises to us. And our joy 
is in that. The word happiness, we can use that word. That's a good word. Uh, the word hap comes from the Latin hap, uh, the happiness hap, which means it's sort of like it's circumstantial. So happiness we can think of as being more circumstantial. We're happy when things are going well, and we're not happy when things are going bad. So happiness is determined often by our circumstances. But joy is something different from that. It, joy is more character-oriented. It, it's, uh, what happiness might be like the weather, joy is our climate. And so if joy is like that regular place we live in, we may be happier and sadder at different times in life, grieve when difficulties come that are overwhelming, and that's good, that's, that's necessary, but we can still live with a joy even when we're not happy. And so that's kind of the difference between them. So uh, people who are always up and down live too much according to their circumstances. We need to see the bigger picture of what our circumstance is. Our circumstance is that we have a God who's given us an eternal hope. That's our promise. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul, when he writes these words, has suffered shipwreck. He's been beaten. He's been chased. He's been scourged. He's been imprisoned over and over again. He suffered a lot in this life. But in every way, he says, it's not done. Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We don't have to feel crushed in life. He says, perplexed, but not driven to despair. We may be perplexed at the troubles of life, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. If you feel like you've been persecuted, you can know that you're still not forsaken by God. Struck down, but not destroyed. What we want to do is pray and tell our problems to God. But we don't tell our problems to God so that he knows them. We tell our problems to God so that we see him. It's not simply so that we can make sure God knows what our difficulties are because he knows what they are. It's so that we can see that in life, God is there with us. That he's not left us, that we're not alone in them. Christians often face the trauma of, of death in life. The final trauma that many people face is not knowing what happens after death. The Bible, of course, tells us that there's a future beyond this life. And we have hope in a God who has provided for us in this future. Let me just give you a shortly, uh, briefly, a couple of theological themes to think about. These are the sort of things that you want to build your life around. The first is to recognize that God comes to us as creator and designer. God is the one who created us. He's the one who designs us. So God comes to us as that God who's designed you and created you to be who you are. And part of the way that God has created us is to be beings, to be humans with reason, with emotions, with our will, with our desires, with our intentions. And all of these are what make us humans, but they're also those elements that make us suffer. It's because of our reason that we think that we understand, we know that we do suffer. Our emotions feel the hard times of life and we weep and we grieve and we cry. That's what makes us humans. But God has made us this way for a reason. But through all of this, we know that he's created and designed us for a reason. We know also that he comes to us as revealer and as comforter. God comes to us as one who's revealed to us himself and as one who comes to comfort us. The great truth of Christianity that distinguishes our worldview from every other worldview is this. That God comes to us in his love and in his grace, 
not simply with propositions, not simply with argument, but as a relationship. You see, we know that God comes to us, he reveals himself to us, and he comforts us in this relationship that we can have with Christ. That is where our comfort's at. It's not simply in feeling like, yep, I can understand and argue my way through my own problems. It's not feeling like I can explain things to myself. Even when we cannot explain propositionally why we go through the things we do, we know that even still we could know that God is there for us, comforting us because of our relationship with him. That is our worldview. Third, God comes to us as our mediator and as our savior. We think about the greatest victory in life we would think sometimes to be the healing of the body. But it's not that. It's really the healing of the soul. The soul that we have that suffers this alienation from God, this separation. Your greatest tragedy in life is not your pain and your suffering. It's not that the body begins to break down. The greatest tragedy in life is that sin has separated your soul, your heart, your mind from God. And so our minds don't think the way it should think. We don't think the thoughts we should. Our life, our soul often feels alienated from God. And so we live a life separated from God. We feel enslaved, our spirit enslaved to sin, enslaved to this world. Healing comes when we have a God in Christ that provides us this substantial healing that reunites us again with God, with his great promise that there is hope outside of this life and beyond this world. And of course, God comes to us as our strengthener and as our restorer. God restores us. Now, we know that in the biblical promise, it's not just a, a, a time in heaven where we float on clouds as we see the New, York, the New Yorker uh, cartoons illustrate. St. Peter welcoming you. Here's your cloud. That's not what heaven is. Heaven is so much more profound than that. It, it's all about living eternally with a body restored, with a life restored that can now enjoy fully the presence of God. Now think about the life that Jesus had before he came to earth. In heaven, Philippians 2 talks about this, Jesus in heaven had everything. He had the, the, the glories of heaven. He had everything imaginable. Think about that, right? Everything. But then Philippians tells us he gave that up. He left that estate behind to humble himself. Now, why would he do that? Because there's one thing in heaven he didn't have. And that's you. The one thing Christ didn't have in heaven was you. And the reason God sends Christ to earth, the reason Christ comes and dies for us, is that he, so he can secure us. So he can now lead us back to heaven again. So it's in Christ that we have this hope, this promise. Our eternal glory is found in what Christ has done for us. Why pain? Why suffering? The one thing pain does for us is to remind us first that something is wrong in the world. There's something wrong. But what pain also does, even for us as believers, is to remind us is that there's a solution. And so while we can't answer the particular question, why is there this particular pain, we can turn from that question and say that there's an answer. And the answer is that God has given us a hope. There's a solution to pain. We can't explain the reason for this particular circumstance, but we can say there's a solution. And Christ has been that solution for us. And so for those of you who are believers today, what we want to do every Sunday, every day of the week, is to just build our strength knowing that there's a God who is there for us, who's done this for us. 
that if you're not a believer, to know that there's a hope, that your hope is not found in the material universe here, but instead in a God who's provided so much for us. Let's stand as we pray. Our Father, as we come again this morning, we thank you for being a God who is there with us in trials and suffering and difficulties. We know, Lord, that we don't travel this road alone, but that you're there with us, that you comfort us in times of grief, that you hold our hands when circumstances overwhelm us. Lord, we thank you for being a God who saw us in our sins, but nevertheless sent your Son to be that one who reunites us with you. So give us this constant reminder to glory in you, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.